Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, very good to be back again. Um, some of you may not know, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. I haven't been here in a month, it feels like. Uh, I was at a conference, and then I got sick. And So it is good to be uh, back together again, and it's a pleasure to see you. My friends at home, it uh, looks like more of you are at home today than typically present here, so we hope you're well. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 which is where we will continue. If you don't have a Bible, we have a, they're in the chairs, actually, underneath some of the chairs uh, in front of you. So um, there you go. And we're in Acts, which is in the New Testament, which means it's toward the second half of your Bible, the back of your Bible. I don't have a page number or I'd give it to you. Um, but that's where we are. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for your word. Lord, even, uh, even contemplating that reality that we have a whole bunch of extra Bibles that are um, stuffed into some chairs here. Lord, and we think about those around the world, even today, that don't have a Bible, have to hide the one maybe they have or the portion of the one that they have. And we think about those throughout the millennia that haven't had the privilege of having your word in a language that they can understand. So, Father, thank you for it. We know that your word is living and active, it's alive, it has the ability, Lord, to read us as much as we sit to read it. And so we pray that your word would do that today. Lord, we pray that you would take a hundred or so uh, different souls that sit under your word this morning and you would speak. And you would draw us to the place of your presence and you would do an eternally good work as a result of our having come to sit under your word. And so bless it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, I, I haven't been with you for about three weeks now. And so that's when we were last together in the book of Acts. We've been making our way through the book of Acts verse by verse when, when I've been teaching. And so uh, we are at the end of chapter 14, I, I will add, finally. Uh, We've, we've been in chapter 13 and 14, which records for us the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. We've been in it for nine weeks, uh, if you add the two weeks that I w wasn't here. Um, it seems like a lot, um, but uh, there was stuff there, so what are we going to do, ignore it? Uh, but anyhow, today our goal, uh, if all goes well, is we're going to finish Paul's first missionary journey. And we have a little, uh, uh, I think we do, a little map here, gives you kind of an idea of what that missionary journey was. As you can see, it starts over on the right side of your screen. Uh, that's where everything begins. There's a little one there near that arrow. And they made their way from the mainland. They were a little further in, actually, a little city called, well, big city, third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, Antioch, uh, and, which is called Syrian Antioch. And they made their way from there to that island of Cyprus, to the mainland of what is called Asia Minor, inland in that mainland to another city called Antioch, and a whole bunch of cities in between. It was a trip that lasted, as I've been mentioning, nearly three years. And so imagine, you know, guys, hey, you know, we're heading out on this short-term mission trip. I'll see you in three years. You know, that, it was a long trip that Paul and Barnabas and even another fellow went with them for a while that they had been on. It, it was over 1,200 miles of travel over land and sea. Much of it walking, not the sea part, but as far as being on the land part, walking from place to place, over 1,200 miles uh, that they covered to hit these various locations. I'm a little out of breath because of my recent sickness, so bear with me. Um, as we've been looking, great trip good things occurring, people coming to the faith, the gospel going forth into communities, the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time ever in those particular communities. So great things were occurring in some places. But it was also a trip that Paul and Barnabas met with difficulties, challenges, problems in those particular cases. The most, I would say, significant of which we ended our time two or three weeks ago and so if you look at verse 19 of chapter 14, it says this, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
Now, if you don't know what stoning is, stoning is essentially where they encircle you, people, a group of people will encircle you, and they will begin to throw, yeah, big stones at you, not little pebbles or anything like that to annoy you, but big rocks at you until eventually one or more of those rocks knocks you down, gets you on the ground, and then everybody just pummels you with the stones that they have. It's designed to kill you. It was a method of execution. And so in this last situation that we looked at, Paul and Barnabas, they're in this particular community, and the people, enough people didn't like it that they drag him out of the city and they stone him. They killed him, or they tried to. And so uh, it was a great trip, <laughs> except for that, you know, except for the near murder that occurred toward the end of it. Now, the interesting thing, and again, because it has been over two months that we've been looking at this, we may forget some of this stuff. The interesting thing is that things had been going pretty well on this missionary journey for the Apostle Paul. And so three, four times ago that we were together, we saw just a few verses. Look back to verse 11. It says there, Now when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in, the, in Lyconian, the language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. A few verses later, a verse or so after that, it tells us that they attempted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas as these deities. All right, so Paul and Barnabas, they're doing their things. A miracle occurred in that instance, and the people of that community, a pagan community, they look and they're like, oh, these are the gods. The gods have come down and they are with us. And now here we are, as we began our time together, just a few short verses later, they're stoning them. They're trying to kill them. And I'm reminded once more, what I think a lot of us know, is how fickle a crowd can be. Here you have a crowd that loved Paul and Barnabas one minute, and five minutes later, they're trying to kill Paul and Barnabas, or at least Paul. It reminds me of that crowd that was in Jerusalem, that on one Sunday is calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're praising Jesus as he comes into the city, and four or five days later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, which is exactly what they went and they did. So the lesson here for us is this, as we look at the fickleness of crowds, is to never put your hope in the opinions of man. Never kind of rest who you are and who you know yourself to be based on the opinions of men, because the opinions of men can change very quickly. All it needs, as we see, is some influencers to enter in, to say, no, we don't like that guy anymore, or we don't like that gal anymore, and to sway opinion against us. And so how much better is it for us to walk in integrity and to have sort of the right opinion of God toward us than to continually be trying to win the right opinion of those that are around us in our society? Soon enough, you're going to get canceled in our society in which we live. It's just a matter of time. Everyone, everybody's going to do something that offends somebody who has the influencers unleashed on you and nobody likes you anymore. You're better off having God like you, having God appreciate who you are and have a right opinion of you than trying to win the opinion of everyone else. Amen? Why don't we all take a deep breath and a drink? So, Here's the good news. Because I've been having a little chest troubles, I was supposed to do lawn cleanup yesterday. I was excused. Praise the Lord, huh? So, there's some benefits. Anyway, so uh, let's continue on. So Paul and Barnabas, uh, great trip. Lots of people responding, good things happening. But again, notice also throughout the whole thing, there was difficulties. There were problems. And so I'll remind you, chapter 13, verse 8, when they're on the island of Cyprus, they encountered a demon-possessed man who, you know, was doing all the things that he was doing, that false prophet, that fellow by the name of Bar-Jesus. That was one of the instances of opposition. When they came to Antioch, it tells us that the leading individuals of Antioch, Pisidia, that they stirred up the population against Paul and Barnabas. That's another situation um, there. Here, then, I should say, they get a little bit further. They're in this little town of Lystra, and the opposition comes in a very different form. And so one, they're being yelled at, they're being threatened by a demon. Another one there, the people are chasing them out of town. Then they have an opposition in the form of, you're a god. We love you. 
let's all pat you on the back and you are wonderful. But here's the thing I think is interesting. Both of those circumstances are just as dangerous. And so it's just as dangerous for people to say, I hate you. You better not say that anymore because you'll stop preaching the gospel. And people saying, you're the best. You're the most wonderful. I love everything you have to say. I want to lift you up and put you on a pedestal as if you're a God. Because pretty soon you begin to believe that and you stop preaching the gospel. You see the point that I'm making here? So it seems as if Satan is changing his tactics. He's coming directly against them. Now he's fully embracing them, and he's singing their praises. But wisely, Paul and Barnabas, they see that, they recognize that, they resist that, and they say, look, we're not gods. And unfortunately, it turned out the people tried to kill them. Well, let's pick up in verse 19. It says, now, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and he entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, <coughs> they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying <coughs> that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we have these opponents of Paul and Barnabas in verse 19. Notice it says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Well, they're another city away, so they're from Antioch, they're something like 40, 45 miles away. And so these people that opposed Paul and Barnabas, they decided to, can you imagine? They decided to walk 45 miles away to follow Paul and Barnabas and to continue to harass, harass them and to stir up the crowd even against them. Not, just, not content to just sort of kick Paul and Barnabas out of their city, out of their region, but they follow them. They make it their mission. We're going to persuade others to be against you as well. And they do. So much so that Paul is stoned here, left for dead, and we see that. It says at the end of verse 19, uh, they stoned him, they dragged him out of the city, probably threw him on a trash heap, which would have been outside of the city, pretty much constantly on fire, and they would have thrown his body uh, onto that heap or near that heap where eventually it would be able to be burned. And it says there that they were supposing that he was dead. So they're done with Paul. You're out of our city. You're out of our hair. No more problems with you. But interesting to take note, as we read, God was not done with Paul. That God had more for Paul to do, and so Paul did not die. And I think that's helpful for us to consider, because in the same way, if God has more work for each one of us to do, then we're not going to die either. And living in an uncertain world in which we live, we can confidently go forward saying, you know what, I'm here for however long the Lord would have me to be here. And I can entrust myself to him. Obviously being wise, using wisdom as we make decisions about what we, where we go and what we do and things like that. But just being able to rest confidently is in that the Lord knows the number of my days. And I don't have to freak out and I don't have to worry. And I'll tell you, that stands out in the society in which we live, as we can face the uncertainty of life knowing that the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is in control, the Lord loves me, and I will not live on this earth one day less than he desires for me to live here upon this earth. We can take a deep breath in life and rest. Boy, love, why don't we all just take a deep breath right now? <laughs> now, there's, there, a question has been raised, and you see, it, you see it in a lot of commentaries and things like that, a question has been raised as to, did Paul actually die or not? So did they think he was dead, but he really wasn't, and he just sort of stirred? Or was he actually dead, and God raised him back to life? Some of that depends on the Bible version you read. As many of you know, there are many different Bible versions that essentially say exactly the same thing, and maybe it's just in a more modern English or an older English or something like that. And so some of that debate depends on kind of the way that the verses are worded here. One thing we can say, none of the texts are really, really specific to say that, yes, he was actually dead and he came back to life, which certainly has happened at other times in our scriptures. Uh, we see examples of that. But I will say this, years later, 
the Apostle Paul, he was writing about what seems to be this instance. He's writing it to the church that is in Corinth. This is probably about seven years after this particular thing, or perhaps even a little bit longer than that. And he described this event, I think. Here's what he said. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I know a man who was in Christ 14 years ago. Now, the context is clear. He's the man that he is speaking of. He says, I know a man who was in Christ 14 years ago who was called up into the third heaven. Now, the third heaven is a reference to what we commonly call heaven. The first heaven, I guess you might say, would be like when you go out and you look into the sky about you and you see the, the clouds that are there. The third heaven is what we oftentimes think of as heaven, you know, where God lives, that kind of thing. And so he says, I know a man who was in Christ 14 years ago, and he was called up into the third heaven. Now, this is what Paul says. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Now, again, it's his body that he's referring to. He says, but I don't even understand the whole thing that happened to me. All I know is I was standing there. Boom, I got hit in the head. Next thing you know, I'm in heaven. Whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He says, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And, I, and he says, he heard things, talking about himself, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, you remember the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, was called up into the heavens, just like it's describing here of this fellow, Paul. And John said, I'll give it a go. I'll tell you what I saw when I was there. And he wrote to us the book of Revelation. Paul here is like, I can't even describe it. It was just remarkable. You'll get there. You know, that sort of thing. But he's referring to this time, I think, here in the book of Acts, where he nearly died, he actually died, whatever it may be. And he, uh, he's either resurrected or he shook off his injury, whatever it might be. Um, but either way, as I said earlier, God was not done with the Apostle Paul yet. And Paul's not done with the ministry that he has. And so notice verse 20. This is so cool. Verse 20, it says, now when the disciples gathered about him, you almost get like this impression, like they're, they're praying for him or they're crying over him or something, but there's a group of them that are gathered around and all of a sudden Paul, you know, he starts to move again and shake his head and open his eyes and blink them and he gets up. And it says, now when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city and then on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to a new city, the city of Derby. Now, if you just got hit by a bunch of rocks from people in the city, but you didn't die, what would you do? I'd get up and run away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ah, they think I'm dead. I'm not. You know, let's get out of here. And yet here's the Apostle Paul going right back into the city from which he had just come and just been stoned for preaching the gospel. And he goes back into that city and preaches the gospel. Again, I suppose most of us would have picked up and left and gone on to a new city. And yet what Paul, what his whole life was about, what this missionary journey was about, he could have sat back in Syrian Antioch and lived the good life. A comfortable life, kind of get up, do the things he has to do, interact with people, church picnics, and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And yet what they realized, remember, we saw this in the beginning of Acts 13, back in September, we saw this, that there was a sense of there are people in the world that need to hear somebody has to go. And remember, they sent their best. We're going to send you, Paul. We're going to send you, Barnabas, to go. And so here now, he gets hit with these stones, the comfortable thing, the safe thing, let's get out of here. But there's still people in that town that need to hear. And so Paul goes back into the town, finishes up one final crusade of sorts, talks to the people, and then as we see in the end of verse 20, the next day they leave and they head off to uh, Derby. Now, before we go on to what happened at Derby, I'd like to consider just the diversity of Paul's experiences. Look at verse 50 of chapter 13. That speaks about their time in Antioch. And there it says this uh, about Antioch. It says, there the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the city. Okay, so that was their experience in, uh, in Antioch. Terrible experience? Not the worst thing in the world. You wish it didn't end that way, but all right. So they drove them out of the district. 
Look at the next one. This is in verse chapter 14, verse 5. Starts there. This is in the city of Iconium, the next city they went to. And there we read, Now when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, Paul and Barnabas learned of it, and they fled the city. They fled Lystra and Derbe, cities of Iconium, to their surrounding country where they continued to preach. So in the first one, they were forced out. In the second one, they kind of ran for their lives. They fled the city. And then we have the instance here in Lystra, the one that we were just, we've been talking about. Again, chapter 14, verse 19, it says there that they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city. So those are th- very, three very differing experiences, aren't they, on the part of the Apostle Paul? One, people chasing you with bats, get out of city. Two, sneaking out at night to get out of the city. And then three, getting hit in the head and dragged and left for dead, thrown outside of the city. Three very different experiences. But what's interesting to me is the Apostle Paul describes all three experiences using the same phrase when he writes about them later on. And so this is found in the book of 2 Timothy. Paul said this. He said, you have, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Timothy was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. He says, you've observed, you've seen what kind of person I was like and the things that I teach and the way I live my life and how I've been trying to do that year after year after year, my steadfastness. He says, uh, he says, you've observed, continuing the next verse, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. There's the three places we've been talking about, correct? So Paul is referencing back to the first missionary journey. He says, Timothy, you heard about the persecution I went through, the sufferings that I went through in those three cities. And then notice what he says, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now some other versions write that as, yet from them all the Lord delivered me. And as I read that, I'm thinking, well, not really all of them did he deliver you from, because you got stoned, and you were left for dead. All right, a case can be made you were delivered from Antioch. A case can be made you were delivered from Iconium. I'm not quite sure I would say you were delivered from Lystra. And yet Paul says, I was delivered from Lystra. And so Paul looks at each one of those instances and those sufferings, and he says, through them all, or from them all, the Lord delivered me. Sometimes I'm not sure we would see it that particular way. And again, yet again, Paul does. And so we could say this, and I think Paul would agree, that the Lord delivered Paul through his sufferings in Antioch. He delivered them in their sufferings uh, in Lystra, and he delivered them from their sufferings in the city of Iconium. But God was in all of it. And Paul was entrusting himself to the Lord in each one of those instances there. He saw God's hand of deliverance, even though there were some difficulties, significant difficulties that he was encountering, especially in that last city. But God miraculously preserved Paul, and Paul saw that, Paul knew that, Paul understood it. I'll be right with you, okay, like when we get done. Um, And what Paul knew was this, God preserved him for a reason. There's more for me to do. If there wasn't more for me to do, I'd be dead. And I would literally be in heaven, and I'd remain there in heaven. And so since there was more for Paul to do, he goes back into the city. Talk about courage. Talk about courage on the part of the Apostle Paul. And I have to imagine that that brave decision preached a sermon as loud as the words that Paul preached. Because here is this guy coming back in. Now, let's say you're a person that's on the, on the surface. You're on the edge. You, you heard Paul talk before, and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. You saw people getting all mad and dragging him out, and you're like, well, that's weird. And now you see Paul come back into the city and preach the same message again. Well, now I think you're going to start to say to yourself, you know what? Maybe I should listen to this dude. Maybe I should listen to what this guy has to say. He sure takes it seriously. And as I said, it preaches a message just as loud and maybe even more effective than a hundred sermons. And so 
they go back to Lystra. Now, let's throw a map back up here again. On this map here, Lystra is the one with the red dot. They're going to leave, as it says at the end of verse 20, Lystra, and they're going to go to that green dot, which is the city there of Derby, another 15 miles away or so. And there they're going to do, it goes on to say in verse 21, what they did in every other city that they went to, they're going to preach. So it says in verse 21, when they had preached the good news, the gospel, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. What happened at Lystra? He got stoned. They went back there and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And this is essentially bringing the missionary journey to a close. Now, here's an interesting thing, uh, an important thing that we take notice of, is that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas made converts, people came to know the Lord Jesus, and then they sought to take those converts to the place of becoming disciples. And that's why they go back into each one of these cities. And so Paul and Barnabas, their chief goal was not simply to get people into heaven. Not simply to say, all right, pray this prayer. Whew, okay, now I'm done with you. Now I got to go on to find somebody else that can pray the prayer. That's becoming a convert, which is important nonetheless, or needless to say. But Paul and Barnabas, their chief goal in life was not just to make converts, but to see those converts become disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, people that were walking with Jesus Christ and learning from Jesus Christ. And that comes about as a result of teaching. And so after preaching the gospel, seeing people respond, Paul and Barnabas are going to go back to those same cities and begin to teach them to show them what it means to, to walk with the Lord, to know the Lord, to be a follower of the Lord. Here's how Paul describes it in the book of Colossians. He says this in the first chapter. He says, him we proclaim, uh, we're picking up in the middle of a, a sentence, but talking about Jesus, he said, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everybody mature in Christ. That was his goal to see people come to the place of maturity, not just get into heaven with fire insurance, but to really be a disciple of the Lord, to know what it means to walk with the Lord and to follow the Lord. Luke doesn't tell us how long they remained in the city of Derby to do that, but it was for a period of time. It was long enough that he could mentor the people, he could ground the people in the faith. And then he says, from Derby, they went to Lystra. From Lystra, they went to Iconium. From Iconium, they went to Antioch. If you notice what they're doing is they're tracing their steps backwards from the opposite direction when they came out on this particular missionary journey. They're just going back city after city after city. We have another map. Let's put this up here real quick. Again, Derby's in the green dot. Notice the city of Tarsus in the blue dot. Do we have that? That would have been the most direct route home. I've been on a lot of little short-term mission trips. I'll tell you, after like a week and a half, two weeks, the longest I think I've been on was about three weeks, you're ready to go. You just want to get home. You've you got to mow the lawn when you get there. You can't wait to see your family. Like, you want to see them first, then mow the lawn, you know, all this stuff. You just want to rest. You want to sleep in your own bed. You're just ready to go home. And the quickest route, remember, they're going back to where the trip started, which is in the bottom right corner over there in Syria. The quickest route to get back there would be to go from Derby to Tarsus, which is where Paul lived, remember, for much of his life. It's where he's from, where he lived another decade or so, even at the very least as an adult. I would imagine a lot of us are like, oh, how cool. We'll stop by Tarsus. We'll see some old friends. My mom will make me a home-cooked meal. It'll be wonderful. Everything will be great. And yet they don't do that. They go, remember, it's a 1,200-mile trip. They're not going to cover all of that land again, but they're going to go back all of that way again. Remember the difficult road it was from Antioch down to Atalaya. They had to climb over mountains and stuff like that. But it's okay to them. It's something that they're willing to embrace because they know that's what the people that they've been ministering to need. They need to be discipled in the faith. As it says at the end of verse 22, they need their souls to be strengthened. 
as it says they're strengthening the souls of the disciples. As it says also in verse 22, they needed to be encouraged to continue in the faith. And then as it says at the end of that, they needed to be reminded that we enter into heaven through many tribulations. We don't enter into heaven because of tribulations. It's not like you earn your way into heaven. But the pathway to get to heaven from this side of the earth, there are difficulties that are going to come with it. Trials, tribulations. In that day in particular, persecutions. And Paul wanted to go back and encourage them. Look, I know you were fired up when you came to know the Lord. You were so excited when you got saved and you were writing on your little notebook, I love Jesus, and all these kinds of things, and you were infatuated with the Lord. But I know that I've been gone now six months, and I bet for a lot of you that's waned a little bit. I bet for a lot of you you're not as excited about waking up in the morning and reading your Bible. I bet for a lot of you you're thinking, I don't want to go to church today, I'm tired. And Paul says, look, be encouraged. Keep running your race. Be strengthened in the faith. I know for a lot of you, you're facing difficulties. You're just thinking, what's it all worth? My life seems harder now that I became a Christian than before I became a Christian. Paul would say to them, through many tribulations, you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Keep running, keep running. He goes back and he encourages them. It's so important that he does this. It's so good that he does this. Again, it's not his goal to merely win converts. Paul's passion is to make disciples. And so while much of his missionary work was preaching, much of his missionary work was teaching and was to make sure that these new believers kept working with the Lord. Now, we're not told what the interactions look like, but they go back into a city. I imagine they come into a room, and I have to imagine a lot of Q&A sessions. You know, you taught us a lot while you were here, Paul, but what about? And so Paul, Barnabas, a couple stools in the front, all right, what's on your mind? What's on your heart? What do you want to know about? And people began to just ask questions, and Paul and Barnabas began to teach them. And when it felt like their mission there was exhausted, they said, all right, we're going to head out tomorrow to the next city. And they went and they did the same thing in the next place. Notice also that it tells us that they used this as an opportunity to encourage them in their trials. Paul and Barnabas knew tribulation. And it seems that these disciples are also beginning to know tribulation. And Paul and Barnabas says, look, you shouldn't be surprised by that. I'm reminded of Jesus's words. John chapter 16, this is toward the end of Jesus's ministry. It says this, I've told you these things so that in me, Jesus talking to his disciples, in me you may have peace in the world because in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And what I appreciate about this is Paul doesn't hide the fine print from these disciples. He's not trying to trick them. He's not trying to deceive them. He's, well, too late now, buddy. You're already a Christian, so you're just going to have to deal with it. He's out, right out there, open, honest with them. And in many cases, their life is more difficult after becoming a Christian than it was maybe before. But he calls them to persevere. He calls them to endure. He calls them to face the challenge of walking daily with the Lord. And in order to do that, we need to be grounded in our faith. And that's what Paul's trying to do. Does this all make sense? Maybe? No? Okay. It does to me. Right? This is what he's trying to do. Be solid in your faith. Verse 23. It says this, uh, And when they had appointed elders for them in every city, or in every church, I should say, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they appointed elders in every city. Now, please remind, remember in every church. Remember in our day, in Ewing, there's probably, just guessing, 30 churches in the town of Ewing, and then you can go to Lawrence, and you can go to Yardley, and Newtown, and um, Trenton, and all over the place. There's probably 30 or more churches in every one of those particular towns. And so, a particular church, you don't like it, what do you do? I'm out of here. I'm going to go find one I do like whatever, and I get it, and that's fine. Um, remember, in that day, you were a Christian, you had one choice. Right? That group of believers right there, that's your church. Enjoy your particular time in there. Well, I don't like the music. Well, that's what we got, all right? And so you, got, you better like it, or uh, whatever. And so uh, in that day, there was one church in any given community. Now, notice Paul and Barnabas, they're going to name elders in each one of those churches 
in each one of those communities. Now, the elders would essentially be the ruling body of that local body of believers. So this local body of believers isn't going to be run by Paul and Barnabas 1,200 miles away. They're going to be overseen by this local body of, of leaders, and those, those people are called elders. Notice also, Paul and Barnabas didn't preach the gospel, have converts, and say, all right, you, 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 and you, you're going to be the elders here. I'll see you all later. He leaves, comes back, teaches, makes sure that people are growing as disciples, and then he names elders of those local congregations. Notice also, at the end of the verse, he says, and he committed them uh, to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed, which ultimately says is ultimately this local congregation, the Lord's going to watch over you guys. Paul's not going to dictate things from 1,200 miles away. The Lord's going to watch over you guys, and he's going to bless you with local elders that will support that work and do that work in the local church. But again, he doesn't name these elders on his first time through the city. He does so the second time through the city. Because Paul doesn't know these people. He doesn't know anything about them. You look handsome. You look like you're kind of smart. How about you being an elder? That's not how we pick elders. And so we have criteria in the scripture of picking an elder. Obviously, not, it wasn't written at the time, but Paul wrote it. So this is some of the things that were no doubt on his mind as he's selecting the elders of this local group. The first place that I'm going to draw your attention to, this is the book of Titus. Titus was one of Paul's disciples. We'll learn about him next week, actually, when we come back together. And in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, he said this. He says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete which is the city, so that you might put what remained into order in that church and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He says, if anyone is above reproach, okay, well, who should I pick? Oh, here's who you pick. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife, his children are believers, and they're not open to the charge of debauchery, wildness, and insubordination, that's who you should pick. And then he says, for an overseer, another word for that, elder, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but rather hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may, able, he may be able to give instruction in, in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. All right? Paul gave more instructions to a different disciple. This is to a fellow by the name of Timothy. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He said, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, elder, Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. Very similar, right? The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Some versions say teachable. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage their own household... How will they take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Now, the list that Paul gave to Titus, the list that he gives to Timothy, not exactly word for word the same, but essentially describing the exact same things, maybe using slightly different wordings or adding another thought here and there. And if you go back and you look at each of those, essentially what you're seeing is Paul is talking about not so much the abilities that the person has, but the character of the individual. And a person's character is not revealed in a weekend. And it's not revealed in a few weeks or even a few months. It's revealed through the day in and the day out of daily life over an extended period of time. And so in other words, in the intervening time of when Paul came into a city 
and then when Paul left a particular city, the intervening time between his first visit and his second visit to each of these towns, there was the opportunity to see who among the church exhibited these character traits. And additionally, that intervening period of time, it allowed for those whom God desired to be the elders of those congregations to become evident to the congregations. We have an expression here at Calvary Mercer that a person becomes an elder or a pastor, a person becomes an elder or a pastor long before actually being named an elder or a pastor. And what, what we mean by that is people begin to observe that, people begin to see that. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we could ever make is to name someone an elder, to name someone a pastor, and to hear people like, him? Oh my gosh, why would they pick him? Or something like that. I think that's an indicator, like, oh, maybe we did pick the wrong guy, or whatever. Rather, what we want to hear is, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Ours is to confirm what the Holy Spirit has already made evident. That, yeah, you're right, that person does love this congregation and does direct and guide this congregation toward good. And so here at Calvary, let me quickly take a sip. And I mean no offense to our elder board. Here at Calvary, our elder board might not be the most intellectual group of guys. We might not be the most successful group of guys in the world and society that are around us. We may not be the most diverse group from within this congregation, but the men that are leading this congregation are men that meet the criteria of Paul's writings to both Timothy and Titus. And then the second criteria, the criteria that kind of we've put in place here at our particular congregation, which is I think unique, perhaps unique to our congregation, is that the men that are serving, we have eight of us that are serving as the, elder of, the elders of this church, they are men that love the Lord, they're men that love God's church, and they're men that love this church. That's the elders of our congregation. Those are the guys that we have leading us in the direction of the voice of the Lord, who we believe to be the voice of the Lord. And so that takes time. And so many of these guys have attended this church for 15, 20, 30 years. I mean, not 30 years, because we haven't been at church for 30 years. Um, but for the duration of this body of believers, and they've stepped up to answer the call of the Lord in that particular way. And we've confirmed that by naming them elders. So Paul and Barnabas, they go back into these towns. They do that. They've already ministered here. They want to go back. They want to make sure that those churches are established. Now, the fact that they're naming elders of these congregations, that demonstrates to us that Paul and Barnabas, again, they weren't just trying to get people into heaven and they weren't just trying to have like Christians kind of floating around all over the place. They were trying to take these Christians, organize them together as a body of believers, a body of believers that could share life with one another. And that's the priority of the local body of the believers is evidenced by Paul's decision to name these folks as elders. He's showing his conviction that the Christian faith, and this is important, has to be lived in fellowship with other believers. That's important. Listen, we could go online, every one of us, and we could find much better Bible teachers. Amen? Right. <laughs> She's like, we're not supposed to say amen. All right. But we all could. We could go online. We could find much better Bible teachers that resonate a little more, and I like his style, and I like the way they approach it, and all that kind of stuff. And, and maybe every one of us would find different people. And so we could get the teaching online. We could go online and we could go to iTunes or whatever we listen to and we could find worship music and I think our people are great, but we could probably find more professional worship musicians putting together worship albums. And so we could play that for worship, switch over to the other channel and we could play that great teacher that we like. We could join Facebook groups or whatever with other Christians and share Bible verses with one another. We can do all the things that the local church does, correct? and in some cases better. And yet that's not God's desire for us. God's desire for us is to be plugged in to a local body of believers. And I'll say this, as a church gets larger and it's harder to keep plugging in with people and we begin to enter into the, hey buddy, you don't even know your name, but I'll call you a pal. 
you know, or whatever, and we begin to enter into that phase of things, then we have to work even harder to make sure that we're developing relationships in smaller group settings with one another. That's God's desire for the local body. Paul demonstrates he sees that as a priority by making sure that there were these churches in each one of these communities so that people can receive the word of God, that they can worship side by side with one another, they can share life together in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and all those other things that we saw (coughs) magnified in the earlier portion of the book of Acts. Well, Elders in every city. I'll end with this last thing. Verse 24, I should say. Then they passed through. We have a map here. They went from Pisidia. That's a region. It's in green, I think. And then they went down to Pamphylia. That's how they get to the port, so to speak. Uh, They're on Asia Minor. Verse 25. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. And I think we have a picture of that as well. So they went from the red dot to the blue dot down to the, all the way across over to the orange dot. They went back home. They went to their home church where this whole thing started. And it says in verse 27, and when they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so after three years of being on the road, they return back to their home church. They return back to the place that this journey had begun. They go back to what is called Syrian Antioch. And there, as the verse says, they began to recount all that God had done with them in the various places that they went. They began to recount uh, how God had opened doors to the Gentiles, non-religious people, if you will, at least not Jewish in religion, and yet how God opened their hearts through their preaching. Notice that, those two phrases there. They spoke of all that God had done and the way that God had opened a door uh, to faith for these people. And so this kind of gathering together, I imagine a potluck of some sorts, where they could recount all that went down, this wasn't a time for Paul and Barnabas to sing their praises. It wasn't a time for people to come and pat them on the back and say, wow, you Man, you're so committed to God. Three years of your life you went, and you're such a good teacher, Paul. No, it's the Lord. You know, but in reality, receiving all of that praise, they went into that group, and they told what God had done. And they told how God had opened up the hearts of people. This was a time for them to sing the praises of God, to speak of God's goodness and the way that God was at work, not themselves. The trip was a great success this first missionary journey, but don't forget, there were a lot of difficulties. And so just because there are difficulties doesn't mean God's not working in and through you. God's not in it. Remember the difficulties, the travel, 1,200 miles, the confrontation with that false prophet sorcerer Bar-Jesus, their aide, John Moore, quit in the middle of the trip. They were driven out of cities like Antioch and Iconium, They had to face the temptation of being praised as gods in one of those towns. They were actually stoned in the town of Lystra. And yet through all of those things, Paul and Barnabas, they were not deterred and they would not be deterred from the work that God had for them. And now they're coming back and giving God praise. And so in your life, as you're on your missionary journey and you're impacting people, you may also encounter difficulties. And you may wonder, is God even in this? If, if he was in this, there shouldn't be any resistance whatsoever. I should be able to coast through life if I'm following his will. That was not Paul and Barnabas' experience. And it's not going to be your experience as well. You will face trials and struggles. That doesn't mean the Lord has abandoned you. He doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're outside of his will. It may mean you're right in the midst of his will. And the enemy is seeking to oppose it. And so keep plugging away. Keep honoring the Lord. Keep serving him. Keep proclaiming the truth. Keep walking in courage like the Apostle Paul did. And know that you will not, it will not come to an end one moment earlier than the Lord has decreed that it will come to an end. Just keep serving him well. 
Verse 28, their home, a little break, a much-needed break. It says, and they remained, I love the way it's worded. We would never say this in our language, like, they remained no little time. You know, we would say a long time. They remained no little time with the disciples. And no doubt they taught them, uh, they began to disciple them and minister to them and encourage them just as they had previously. And so with that, the end of the first missionary journey. It took us almost as long as the missionary journey itself (laughs) took for us to do. Uh, But that is the end of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Woohoo! A mini clap in between uh, end of books. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for Barnabas. Thank you for their uh, commitment to the faith and to serving you. And for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, truly, to the uttermost parts of the earth, that these guys, uh, they took you seriously when you said that, and they embraced that, and they did that. And Lord, maybe that's what you have for us. Maybe some of us will literally go to the uttermost parts of the earth in this room. But we know that our missionary journey, it primarily begins right in our hometown with our loved ones, our family the people that we work with, our neighbors on our street, the folks we come in contact with on a daily basis, the gas station and Wawa and other places. And so, Lord, we ask, I ask, especially for me, Lord, that you would give each one of us the heart of a missionary. Lord, you give us eyes to see that there are people that do not know the glorious truth that they can be in right relationship with God because of the work of his Son. Pour out your spirit on every one of us, Lord. I just pray, even as if we were really going on a trip, we'd probably bring people up in front of us here. We'd pray for them and encourage the Lord's blessing on their life uh, the next day and their walk the next day and week and two weeks ahead of them. And so, Father, I ask your blessing on every one of us in this room that you'd give us the heart and the mind of a missionary as we go forth from here. And you'd give us a hunger to look for opportunities to communicate your truth to others. And Lord, if you'd be so gracious that you'd use us in the life of others, that they might come to the place of faith and growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.